Good afternoon, good evening. You're on equal footing. I'm Dove Tusman. Our show tonight is on the concept of order out of chaos, conflict and infighting in American politics and in the White House. Has it been a hurt? Has it been a hindrance or has it actually been a help in terms of the development of our American democracy, development of civil rights, movements forward with respect to foreign policy, etc., since World War II. I'm joined this evening by a best-selling author, a renowned presidential historian, a frequent television and radio analyst on CNN, Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, C-SPAN, PBS NewsHour, among many other outlets on both sides of the partisan divide. Dr. Tevi Troy. Dr. Troy, welcome to Equal Footing. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. I appreciate it. You know, Dr. Troy, it's, a, it's, it's great to have you on because you bring so many different perspectives to this conversation about conflict and infighting in American politics and how it's affected American democracy since World War II. You bring a historical perspective. You bring an insider's perspective from within the White House as well. You've served in several high-level positions over a, a broad period in Washington, you, culminating in your service as deputy assistant and then acting assistant to the president for domestic policy under George W. Bush. You've written various books on the the White House and policymaking, but not only from a serious policymaking perspective, but from also from a kind of a, 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 a uh, an insider's perspective, and it, almost like you're 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 part of that gab and gossip within the White House, which makes your book so 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 such crisp and and, and great reads. Uh, your your 2013 book, what Jefferson read. Ike watched and Obama tweeted 200 years of popular culture in the White House was a Washington Post bestseller. And, uh, and then, of course, your academic background is varied. You have a BS in industrial and in labor relations, an MA and a PhD in American civilization. Uh, so it's, it's really great to have you on the show and, and be able to uh, pick your brain along uh, a bunch of different lines. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. Feel free to call me Tevi. Okay. Thanks, Tevi. Tevi, let's let's start with just the the precept. Your your most recent book is called Fight House. Obviously, a, a play on the on the on, on the the White House, Fight House rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Set the stage for us about what conflict and infighting in the White House is about. Let's start with that before we broaden out the the concept to you know the American political stage more broadly. Well, when you have people who are aggressive, who are type A, who are ambitious, and who have very strong beliefs, and you put them in a very tight situation at very high-stakes discussions, you are going to see conflict that inevitably arises. It's part of the, the human condition. And what I do in Fight House is I look at this type of fighting, and again, you saw in the Roman years there were fights among the triumvirates, and you've seen it in, um, in all kinds of politics and in every political system. Uh, but I look at in Fight House, specifically in the American political system, once you have the development of a White House and a White House staff, what happens when you have these people together with the mix of 
a very aggressive media that's looking at what everyone's doing. And America is the world power in this period that I look at. So everything is of such high stakes. And it's amazing how when you have these people in these situations that they should be at the most elevated level, but sometimes they're at the lowest, most base level, and they really engage in the pettiest types of activities. Yeah, and you're, I really encourage listeners to pick up this book. It's been uh, great to to go through it over the last several days. Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. It also helps, I think, Tevi, to give us some perspective, because these days everything you hear about is without precedent. The second impeachment of Trump is without precedent. This level of polarization in American politics is without precedent. Um are we living through truly a period in terms of this kind of cult- culture wars and racial polarization and the uh, conflict that we've just went through in the, in, in, in the past administration of Trump, but we're still living through now in the transition to the Biden administration? Is it without precedent? Have we seen this before? I am a presidential historian. When I hear the words without precedent, I look for precedents, and I usually find them. And it is absolutely true that there are some crazy things that have happened in the last couple of years, uh, especially you look at some of the, uh, some of the urban violence, for example, that's happened in the last year. But if you look at the 1960s, there was urban violence in every summer of Lyndon Johnson's presidency. So some of the problems that we face today are, are not unprecedented. Uh, there's certainly been partisan divides in American politics. Uh, they're clearly not good now. But it's not, it's not the first time we've ever heard of partisanship. And I think that one of the great things about America is there's a, an inveterate sense of optimism that we can make our way through it. And that's what I'm hoping we'll be able to do. We're going to come back to the 1960s in a, in a moment. I'm glad you opened that doorway. Call and participate in our conversation. Order out of chaos, conflict and infighting in the White House and how it's affected our democracy for good or bad, since World War II, I'm here with the distinguished presidential historian and, and best-selling author, Dr. Tevi Troy. You can call in to participate at 718-303-9090. If you're shy about being the radio, you don't have to say your real name. You can also text a question to 917-428-4062. Tevi, 1960s. I think it's a, a glad you... you uh, you talked a little bit. You, you mentioned that the the racial polarization at, the, at at that time. They were actually even called in the 1964 election the Goldwater rallies, the the rallies that were actually occurring in northern cities, mostly in the black community, in the summer of '64 before the the uh, election in in '64 that where the candidates were Lyndon B. Johnson and Barry Goldwater and and George Wallace as a third candidate. And they were called that because it was it, the Republicans felt so clearly that 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 level of chaos on the news and the TV. Remember, the age of the TV at that point is only you know really fifteen twenty years old in terms of people watching the nightly news at most, and that those rallies were going to help the Republican cause. And that was a really ironic dynamic going on because you had LBJ who, when he was selected as vice president, remember the Kennedy LBJ ticket in 1960 was seen as a segregationist ticket. I mean, it had the support of the white South and LBJ had, was seen as a, really as a pariah by, by civil rights advocates at the time. And then of course becomes, you know, the consider the greatest um, sitting president in terms of civil rights that time bring us to 1964. Because it feels, to, to, you know, preparing for the show, it feels like that was the moment perhaps that, that at least on the surface was most similar to today. And then out of that comes the Civil Rights Act. Out of that comes so many extraordinary policy initiatives. Are we on the precipice of 
a policy initiative explosion under President Biden? Has Is there a catharsis that just happened over the last few years under Trump that is now going to lead to a, a period of like great society type legislation? Well, I, I assume there's going to be efforts in that direction by the Biden administration. But if you look back to, to 1964, at the time, as horrific as it may sound to us today, there were areas in the country, large areas in the country, in which racial discrimination was not only accepted, but it was the, the appropriate way to be. That, that's what people expected. And I think we've come so far as a society that the ra- racial segregation uh, and racial hatred and bias against people on the basis of race is abhorrent to us today. So I think it's, it's only been 60 years, less than 60 years, and I think we've made great progress as a nation. So I, th- I think we should sometimes step back and take a look at how things can improve over time and get better in relatively short amounts of time. I mean, that's not exactly my lifetime, but my father has lived through that whole period and is still with us, thank God. So I, I think sometimes it's good to step back and look at the progress we've made and hope that we can continue to make progress into the future. I guess my point is, though, could we actually make that progress without the conflict, which is the essence of, of this show. Like, did we need to go through the catharsis of those the race riots and an, a presidential election really happening along racial lines back in 64 for then the change to happen? Or could we have gotten there without that dialectic, without that level of, of conflict? Well, I think it is true that sometimes out of conflict and tension, comes change, because if people are perfectly happy and blasted, they're not going to change things. But I think there are other things that can bring about positive change, and not just thinking about larger government programs or more government spending. Uh, think about technology. I mean, think about uh, Silicon Valley. It has brought some challenges, to be sure, but it's also brought amazing things. I mean, you look at the iPhone, for example, and it just in that one thing, you have so many tools that you couldn't have had without a dozen of different devices in 1980. So... We are finding ways to connect more through electronic media and through uh, the, the high-tech inventions. And I think uh, you look at the, the development of this new vaccine uh, for the coronavirus in a relatively short period. I think the level of medical advances is happening at such a rapid pace that sometimes we don't step back and look at it and say, wow, we're really, we're really on the cusp of something special, and it doesn't necessarily have to come from Washington. Right, and I think that's the the reaction to the coronavirus along in the public sphere and in the private sphere is an example of what can happen under extraordinary pressure, right? And, you know, how we can we can rise to the, the occasion. All right, so we hit the 1960s. One of the things I loved about your book is how I felt like, what is it, like a... Like I was eavesdropping in these different White Houses, and you talked about like the, there was like the the Camelot White House. Like Kennedy actually had a lot of conflict. LBJ is widely known as having been kind of a boor and a tough guy to deal with, and kind of almost almost fed off of conflict from advisors. You, in the Nixon White House. I want to get back to that. You talked about you know Kissinger kind of being a hegemon there. I want to talk about the Carter White House for a second, because one of the things I loved about your book was how it busted some myths I had about Carter. Carter was the first president I remember. You know, I was, you know, whatever, six six years old, five years old when he was elected. And I have this, as an adult, I think of him as, the, as, the, as a sweet but not that effective president and as kind of a pushover. Um, but it turns out, like, he kind of had, I don't know if I'm choosing my words, correctly, but kind of had OCD. Like, he was like a serious micromanager. Yeah. Tell us a little yep. bit about the Carter White House and what was conflict there. 
Carter was indeed a micromanager. He famously controlled access to the White House tennis courts himself, and not necessarily through aides, which is the way it should be done. And also on policy matters, uh, one of his cabinet secretaries called him, not flatteringly, the highest-paid assistant secretary of planning we've ever had, because he wanted to be involved in the real nitty-gritty of legislation. And that, that's great that he had that kind of level of knowledge. But when you're president, you have other fish to fry. You have other things to do, and you really need to be looking at the big picture. And I think one of the problems of Carter was he refused initially to have a chief of staff. And I think that led him also to be responsible for the managing of the White House. And I think it was short-sighted. They eventually corrected it two or three years into the administration, but I think it was too late. And Carter's reputation was having a dysfunctional, poorly managed White House with this micromanager on top. And before we move on from Carter, you know, which I think considered obviously stagflation and so forth, but the acute event that's considered the greatest challenge of his administration is the Iran hostage crisis. Was his management style, did you think that directly impeded his ability to manage that crisis well, or was it just something more of random circumstance? Okay, it was obviously a very difficult situation, and it was not clear what all the options were, but he seemed embattled. He seemed beyond his capabilities, and uh, there's a great joke, actually, uh, from Ronald Reagan at that time, where he's on the campaign trail, and he says, I have a dream. Jimmy Carter comes to me in a dream, and he says, Ronnie, why do you want my job? And I said to him in a dream, Jimmy, I don't want your job. I want to be president. And I think that joke really kind of resonated at the time, because there was a sense that Carter was out of his depth. And that maybe Reagan could step in and do what needed to be done, could be more presidential, even if people didn't think he had necessarily the intellect that Carter had. Carter may have been the, the smartest president of the 20th century. He was a nuclear engineer, very bright, high, very high IQ guy, but mm-hmm. didn't seem to know what he was doing as president. So after the break, we're going to talk about the Reagan years and the conflicts in the Reagan White House. We're talking about the concept here tonight on Equal Footing. Uh, here with uh, Dr. Tevi Troy, is a renowned presidential historian, best-selling author, TV analyst. The concept of order out of chaos and how conflict and infighting in the White House may actually have benefited American democracy since World War II. Participate in our conversation. Call in at 718-303-9090. And we will be right back on Equal Footing. Tonight's program of Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is brought to you by Mechanical Art Capital. Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. Unlock the cash value of your collection or inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's easy-to-use guaranteed buyback contracts. For more information, call 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972. Operators are standing by. You can also go to www.mechanicalart.com capital.com the funds when you need them are wired to you quickly and discreetly in two business days or less and your timepieces are stored in a safe location in manhattan new york you can add them back anytime you're ready safe and simple you need extra cash contact mechanical art capital 833-209-0972 i've been caught All 
right, we're back on Equal Footing. I'm here with my guest, Dr. Tevi Troy, best-selling author, presidential historian. Wrote a great book. I highly recommend to everybody. It's a, it's an easy read, and it, it satisfies your nerd instincts. It satisfies your your uh, page six needs, TMZ, whatever. It's a combination of, of history and gossip. It's fantastic. It's called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And boy, there have been a lot. Okay, before the break, we were on Reagan. And... I loved reading. I remember a little, a little snippet from your from your book, Tevi, about leaks and and the fact that there were folks in the Reagan White House who would like leak things to the press, but like insert words that would be kind of the words that would usually be used by Don Reagan, who was the uh, chief of staff, to try to like blame others. I didn't realize this. People would like leak in a, such a way using such a word that that others would be assumed to have been the one to leak. Tell us about what the Reagan White House was like. Yeah, it was leaked by misdirection. And I appreciate the things you said about the book, the kind of feeling that you're eavesdropping like you're there. And I think with my method, I was really trying to get a sense of what people were actually saying. And I relied heavily on oral histories, because those are things where the aides leave the White House and they're told, well, this isn't going to appear for 10 years so or till certain people are dead. So you can say what you want. And they, people are just much more forthcoming in that environment. I think they're more comfortable in kind of letting it, letting it all go. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the Reagan White House, there was a massive conflict at the very top between Ed Meese, who thought he was going to be the chief of staff, and he and was a real conservative, and Jim Baker, who became the chief of staff and was a moderate. And the two of them were kind of at the heart of the conflict throughout the Reagan administration. Now, again, our... our our show's title is is Order Out of Chaos, which we didn't make up, right, Teddy? <laughs> it actually comes from the Latin Order of Chow, which comes really from is a thousands of year old concept, and is this maybe we'll get to this in the show is actually the second line of whom oh second line of the of the Bible refers to this, but the concept that you kind of have to have the dialect, you have to have chaos, you have to have the the fight back and forth, light and darkness, for you to then get to the right solution. The, you know, and and in the in the Reagan White House was that by effect? Did Reagan encourage that tension between Meese and Baker to be able to kind of organically arrive at the right outcomes, or was it something happening behind his back? I, I would say it happened behind his back. In fact, when Reagan picked Baker over Meese, he said to Baker, "Make it right with Ed," recognizing that Meese was going to have to be an important part of the administration and of the conversation. And I think it, it sort of, they sort of stumbled into the right answer in that Meese represented the conservative wing, ba- Baker represented the, the moderate wing. Both were extremely important within the conservative, or within the Republican Party at the time. And I think by having the two of them in tension and feeling like they had to be in front of Reagan at all times, Reagan really got to hear both perspectives. And I think that was helpful to him in developing a presidency that was conservative, but willing to compromise and make deals in order to get stuff done. So you have a lot of myth-busting in the book, which I love, and part of that, is, for me at least, was around the, let's call it the intellectual horsepower of some of these presidents. Reagan, like Bush, like George W. Bush, uh, is often seen, um, maybe blithely, maybe incorrectly, as being kind of an intellectual lightweight. But in your books, it, it, in, in your book, uh, that, that, that was... Um, I came away kind of needing to change my view on that. Talk to us about 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 Reagan, in terms of as a planner, as the intellect. Yeah, Reagan was a huge reader, and people don't really realize this. And in fact, he used to. Uh, Nancy said he would come back from trips with with just piles of books all over the place, and he was he was constantly reading uh, from childhood. 
And I know people generally don't think that about him because he was trying to put out this image of him as a regular guy, not someone who's sitting and reading heavy intellectual tomes. And in fact, at one point in the administration, he was reading a serious policy book, and Marlon Fitzwater, his press aide, said, oh, why don't I leak this to the press that you're reading this book so they'll think you read serious books as opposed to Louis L'Amour novels, which was what the general conception of him was. And Reagan said, I don't think we need to do that, Marlon because he was very, very protective of his image as a regular guy who could appeal to regular people. Isn't that fascinating? I, I know we're skipping around on the timeline, but since we're on the topic, George W. Bush is also was uh, you know, often teased in this respect, and, and his, maybe less so since, because he's, he's become a, a, a somewhat respected artist and, and author and so <laughs> forth, but in, during his presidency and before, he's also seen as kind of an intellectual lightweight. Is that... Is that a correct conception or a misconception? Well, again, there's the reality that he was a heavy reader, would read 60 to 90 serious books of nonfiction every year, even as he was president. But the fact that he was seen as this kind of cowboy is not without um, intent on his part, because he loses a primary election, in, or he loses an election in 1978 to a guy named Kent Hans who denounces Bush as some kind of pointy-handed Northeastern intellectual with these fancy degrees from uh, Yale and, and Harvard. And Bush says after he loses that race that he's never going to be out-cowboyed again. And he wasn't. But the price of never being out-cowboyed again was being perceived as a cowboy. Right. It, 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 we're really hopping around the timeline, but it brings, it brings me back to LBJ and I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of kind of the given moments. Like he, he was perhaps the, the, I'm an art, here I am with a presidential story, so correct me if I'm wrong, but to, 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 to my perception, he was the most conscious president in his historical moment. I mean, he was kind of a segregationist. He wasn't a civil rights advocate, but he understood that history was going to judge him very harshly. And he also understood that the the alchemy of the post-assassination moment and the social uprising was the moment for the Civil Rights Act. And, and as a white Southerner, he he was the one actually to make to make it happen. Talk to us about this, these given moments. Are, have presidents been conscious that because the given moments are the chaos, right? These the moments of war, the Iran hostage crisis, 9-11, the uprisings in the streets, the coronavirus, things you can't predict, and how leaders have taken that chaos, have taken those given moments and done positive things with. Who, who has done that? Who was conscious of that and who wasn't? Who lost the opportunity? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And in fact, uh, I wrote another book called Shall We Wake the President that looks at presidents and disasters and how they deal with these historic moments. I think Bush on 9-11 was cognizant that there was a special moment, and he didn't do great at every one of the speeches in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. In fact, one of his speeches from the Oval Office was so bad that his aides called it the awful office address <laughs> instead of the Oval Office address. However, he did Tell, like tell our listeners when that was. We can look it up on YouTube. Right, but the, um, he, he, he did a great job when he gets on the fire truck and he says, I can hear you, and soon those people who did this are going to hear you too. And so he knew how to seize the moment right then and there. A uh, president who really couldn't seize the moment, and we're talking about, you know, we've got coronavirus right now, uh, was Woodrow Wilson. Did a terrible job in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic 
tried to repress information about it. I really didn't do anything from a policy perspective, and it was only concerned with uh, with sending troops to Europe to fight World War One. Well, those troops were spreading the disease among themselves on passenger ships, and then when they got to Europe, they were spreading the disease among the people of Europe. So, right. uh, really, a guy who didn't seize the moment and did a terrible job. So, you know, where, wherever you sit in the partisan uh, uh, spectrum, however you see the Iraq War and the reaction after 9-11, I would imagine that part of George W. Bush's season the moment around 9-11 was deciding this would actually be the catalyst to complete his father's job and bring an end to Saddam Hussein. Is that, was that part of, of what his calculus was at that moment in your view? I don't think it was at that moment. I mean, the, the history suggests that he initially wasn't thinking about the uh, about Iraq, and that it was a later meeting where they got together. I believe at Camp David, and that's where the uh, the idea crystallized. And and again, we did have intelligence suggesting that they were developing weapons of mass destruction, and that they had been a nation that was threatening to us and to Israel and to other allies and to Kuwait. So there, there was a lot of concern about Iraq at the time. But I don't think Bush looks at 9-11 and says, oh, now's the chance to get Iraq. Not right away, yeah. Right. And, and let's go back to Nixon, because, that, of course, the, 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 the term Nixon in China now, in a sense, gets to this point, right, of the, seeing an opportunity, an unexpected opportunity, and in this case it had to do with uh, creating an, uh, making an, an ally or at least a, an arm's-length uh, friend from a potential enemy, which is critical to the evolution of the of the Cold War, and it was from a president in, in President Richard Nixon who had had a virulent anti-Chinese rhetoric prior. Talk to us about that. How did he transform that moment of uh, of the, the zeitgeist around Vietnam and and his position on China pr- prior to, to 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 pivot in 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 that way? How did that happen? Well, you're right that this whole idea of when Nixon goes to China, they include something that's unexpected. But the other aspect of unexpected is not just the unexpected opportunity, but the unexpected person taking advantage of that opportunity. Nixon was such an anti-red, anti-communist, that it wasn't anticipated that he would do that thing. But he and his national security advisor, uh, Henry Kissinger, were really invested in this idea of the bold stroke. They wanted to take big strategic steps to change the global chessboard. And Kissinger, who was national security advisor, was so obsessed with secrecy that he even kept William Rogers, who was the Secretary of State, out of the loop on this whole Nixon to China initiative. And at one point, Kissinger is going secretly from a trip to India, Pakistan, to China. And he claims he can't go to a meeting because he has a stomach ache. And one of Rogers' aides says, oh, I bet you Kissinger doesn't have deli belly. I bet he's secretly going to China. And Rogers turns white because he realizes that's exactly what Kissinger is doing. Mm-hmm. So it was more, it was more planned. It, it was more forethought than, than is sometimes given credit for. There was definitely a lot of forethought going into that, but also secret forethought. Kissinger had his aides make up three briefing books between the people who knew entirely about the the Nixon to, to China mission, the people who knew aspects of it but didn't know when, and then the people who were completely in the dark. So they had to constantly update these three different briefing books. So our topic tonight on Equal Footing is how conflict and infighting in the White House has actually benefited American democracy since World War II. We're talking about Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, and this is a, a great 
example of that in your in your book. You talk about how Kissinger was really a power jockey in the in the Nixon White House. Talk to us about how that worked and how was Nixon aware of that? Was he encouraging it? What was the Nixon White House like, and how, what was Kissinger's role? Oh, I think Nixon was well aware of Kissinger's tendencies, and he used to talk about how crazy Kissinger was in terms of his obsession with outmaneuvering the Secretary of State Rogers, which he eventually does, because Kissinger becomes the first and only person to have both the Secretary of State and National Security Advisor role at the same time. But you mentioned that you liked the story about people using leaks as a kind of misdirection. Kissinger was famous for this, too. At one point, he's dating a very attractive Bond girl named Jill St. John. And it is leaked to the press and shows up in the press that he's dating her. Kissinger goes to complain to Nixon about this leak, and he blames Rogers for it. But the truth is that Kissinger leaked it, A, so that people would know he's dating a Bond girl, and B, so that Nixon would think that Rogers was a leaker, and Nixon hated leakers. That's fascinating. It was like a double, it was a double spy move. Yeah. Well, we're, we're gonna we're gonna take a break in a minute. We do have a couple of text questions, and then we're gonna get a little more current. Uh, you know, don't worry, guys. We're gonna talk a little more. We're gonna get through. The Clinton. We can't we can't skip Clinton. The Clinton years had a lot of uh, of intrigue, and and then bring it bring it to the uh, to the current day. We'll be back in a minute on equal footing. Equal Footing with Dove Tusman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. Hi, I'm Dove Tusman. We're having fun and equal footing tonight with Dr. Tevi Troy. We're geeking out on conflict and infighting in the White House in America over the last uh, 75 years or so since World War II and trying to do some myth-busting. In a sense, it's benefited American democracy in some pretty key moments. In, uh, we haven't really talked about the immediately post-World War II period, but certainly civil rights uh, um, movement in the 1960s, some of the overtures, and ultimately peace and alliance with China, and in the uh, in the 70s, of course, the uh, the coming together of the country in many respects under Reagan. All right, let's let's talk about about Clinton. One of my favorite guilty pleasures. Uh, I even reread it recently. Tevi was <laughs> it was I think uh, the the prime primary colors. That's what it was. It was a book. It was originally published anonymously in like I think like the mid or late nineties. I think it was later attributed to uh, the columnist Joe Klein. And it was like a Roman a Clef. It was like you know a work of it was, a, it was fiction, but it was based on real people events and about the 
about the Clinton presidential campaign and kind of bled into the initial term. One of the myths that I feel like your book, Fight House, burst for me, and I don't know if this was an intentional, Tevi, and I want to know whether you agree, was I thought of the Clinton White House as the one that had the most intrigue, the one that was the most infighting in. And actually, on a relative basis, it seemed kind of muted relative to other administrations. Is that accurate in your view? Yeah, and, and, and for two reasons. First of all, in the first term, the first couple of years are more focused on getting a lot done in a, a kind of more liberal direction. And then when Clinton loses the House and Senate in 94, then there's a course correction moving backwards, and they bring in Dick Morris as this guy secretly named Charlie. He's a code-named aide, and he fights with Stephanopoulos, uh, George Stephanopoulos, and Harold Dickies. So that's it in the, in the first term. But in the second term, they're so embattled by impeachment that they kind of circle the wagons and don't infight as much because they're so concerned about fighting against the Republican House that's trying to impeach the president. Right. And do you think that, in a sense, the lack of conflict in the second term made the Clinton second term less effective in terms of policies advance, or was he just paralyzed by divided government in the legislative branch? Well, I think he was paralyzed by not only divided government, but also by the Lewinsky scandal, because that happens relatively early in the second term. And it's very hard to, I mean, the the real focus from that moment on is on survival and not necessarily on legislative accomplishments. Yeah. It's interesting, I and mean, I don't want to. I hope we'll have an opportunity in the show to, to to bring this back to some degree to the the spiritual, because I think there is something there that parallels the political around order out of out of chaos. But the, it's it's fascinating in reading your book, Fight House: Rivalries in the White House, and be, uh, from Truman to Trump, which I highly recommend to all of our our listeners. It's fascinating to see just the law of un- unintended consequences of how. Uh, certain conflicts led to certain outcomes, but also the degree to which the presidents were aware and encouraging, or at least laissez-faire around that. And there's a sense of the their awareness, I don't know if they would have called it this, but of the dialectic, the need for people to kind of fight things out and argue things out, like you talked about Reagan wanting to hear both point of, points of view. Well, I think you could contrast that to the Johnson White House, where Johnson, as you said, was kind of a bore and a big footing around, but he didn't want to hear... In, about infighting. He wanted everybody on board with the Johnson program. And I think that led, in some ways, to a bad result in Vietnam, because you had groupthink, and you had people who kind of shared only one perspective, and you didn't have enough outside views. And some of the outside views were critical of Johnson, critical of the war. Johnson didn't want to hear it. That is a great point. If he had allowed for more dissension, then there would have been more obvious things said that were in the, in the probably in the public domain, but weren't getting to him around the Vietnam War. Yeah, and in fact, I detail in the book that there was a collection of aides at the State Department who were concerned about Vietnam, but they were more concerned about Johnson. So they called themselves the non-group, and they met secretly so that Johnson wouldn't know that they were questioning his approach to Vietnam. So it's really not the way to run a railroad. If, you, if you're trying to keep yourself secret from the principle, uh, something is wrong at some level there. Like a forerunner to the never-Trumpers in the Republican Party. Let's, let's go to the Obama uh, two administrations before we come to the, the current moment. It, it, maybe just because it's closer to the present and because there, there are more sources of information. There were, to me, there were, I guess, less surprises there in, in the book, although it was fascinating. What do you think was the greatest 
tension, uh, conflict within the Obama White House that had some sort of positive effect? Uh, it's an interesting question. I think there were some tensions in the Obama White House between the younger and the older aides, especially when it came to foreign policy and, let's say, the Arab Spring. I think the younger aides were more inclined to uh, drop President Mubarak and to kind of let him let him, let him dangle uh, in ways that I think the U.S. regretted when then you had the Muslim Brotherhood take over there, and now you've got Sisi, who I guess is more allied with the U.S. and Israel, but also is uh, is a pretty uh, tight-fisted uh, dictator. So I, I think uh, that that was one of the tensions. The other was there was a tension between the male and female aides. There was kind of a gender-based divide. That in that White House, and I think that really didn't come out so much during the administration. And I think in my book, in Fight House, I bring that out and flesh it out in a way that I don't think people were aware of so much. Is that simply because there were, for the first time, a significant number of uh, senior women in the White House under Obama, or was there something about the Obama management style and the Obama White House that led to that gender divide? I think it's a combination that there are these senior women, but at the same time, they feel like they're either aggrieved or they don't have enough say or they don't have enough senior positions. And then so sometimes people who were men who were expected certain positions were pushed out of them, and those people become angry. Uh, but then also the, the women would get together in their own private meetings where men weren't allowed, and they would uh, have discussions about uh, the theory of amplification, where if a woman says something, then they've got to advance that. Another woman has to say, yes, I agree with Frida or Sally or whatever the name might be. Interesting. And, and it, it, we're seeing a redux, right, of a lot of the Obama White House. There's a lot of rehires under the Biden administration. Okay, let's let's get a little bit more current, and it's hard to talk about uh, President Trump and President Biden without without getting partisan. And so, it will really, it's not our point here tonight. It's talking about the kind of the alchemy of conflict, the alchemy of infighting, and how it can lead to positive effect. The Trump White House, you know, in the book, and I think in popular consciousness, is seen as as really rife with dissent and perhaps the most chaotic. So let's start by just this. You know, straight down the middle of the fairway. Is that true? Was the Trump White House the most chaotic and conflict-ridden White House historically? I have to say I don't know. And it's a weird answer because I'm the expert. I wrote the book on this. But I didn't have the same access to sources in the Trump White House that I did in other White Houses. So among the White Houses that I had access to the oral histories and the archives and all the other material I looked at, I, I argue that the Ford White House was the most riven by conflict. It may very well be true that when we have more information and when the libraries open up and we have the oral histories, that we'll see that it was, it was the Trump White House. And the journalistic accounts certainly suggest that. But I just don't know based on the information we have at this moment. As you look at what you do know with respect to the Trump White House, was there anything where there was a, a clear divide on policy or a philosophical divide that you that you think that Trump was somewhat encouraging so he could hear different points of view, or was it simply uh, something that was just you know the train was off the off the tracks? Was there something conscious in, in, in your in your view in terms of Trump's management of chaos? Yeah, that's a great question, and I argue that in the areas where there is general alignment within the conservative and Republican worlds, 
there was less conflict in the Trump White House. And in the area where there's uncertainty and disagreement within conservatism and within republicanism, including immigration, trade, and later how to handle the coronavirus, on those issues there was much more fighting. And I think that makes sense because one of the main points I make in Fight House is that ideological disagreement is one of the three key indicators of whether there is going to be conflict. And there were certain ideologically, certainly ideological divides in the Trump White House, and on the areas in which there was more ideological division, there appears to have been more conflict. Interesting. It'll be fascinating to see over the next few years as information bleeds out what the real story was and what was intentional and what wasn't and what were the real dividing lines. Because when you're so close to it, it, it so, so much of it feels personal. You know, this person resigned to this person at this time. This person didn't like that person, much like it did during the Clinton years. But then with more historical perspective, it seems like there was more purpose to it. Yeah, and, and Trump did claim that he likes conflict and he was willing to let people fight it out in a way that, let's say, Obama wasn't. Obama had this no-drama Obama approach, and he said he didn't want to see conflict and he would chide for getting involved in conflict. So I think that... The Trump White House, in some ways, was purposefully more conflict-ridden, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that all of the conflict was purposeful. Right. We have a couple of great uh, text questions. Let's get to one before the uh, the break as we will get into the, the Biden administration, and I hope I have the chance to talk about this from a little bit more of a philosophical or spiritual perspective. All right, so I'm going to condense this question, Tevi, a little bit for just for efficiency. Um, so Richard writes, I worry that the new White House will be focusing on solving the wrong, the wrong problem. Society has changed so much that even the description of discrimination has changed. It's no longer about blacks versus whites. We have a nation of many more colors dispersed by religion, age groups, and sex preferences. It's like a 3D matrix. Biden has been elected by professing understanding discrimination, but by appealing mainly to the black community and only one part of that matrix. Failing to understand the whole paradigm may bring about another period of chaos. What does your guest think? So I think there is this theory of intersectionality on the left, starting on the academic left, that each characteristic that may have been discriminated against in the past, so think gender, sexuality, race, uh, ableism, the more of those characteristics you have today, the more favored that person may be. And I think this is what's getting at the kind of 3D matrix nature of discrimination. So somebody who has multiple of these characteristics might be someone who's more favored or or more uh, preferred in the idea of intersectionality and inequity than, uh, than, than in years past. And I think that can lead to complications and difficulties. And look, I think the whole idea of America is we're supposed to put the past behind us and move forward with our joint ideas as Americans. There's a book by Barry Weiss where she talks about anti-Semitism, and she has this great passage in there where she says, in Europe, the Protestants and the Catholics used to kill each other. In America, they have brunch. I'd like us all to have brunch and move past some of these older divides. Yeah, you know, it's... it's uh it's interesting. It was a good question, actually. I, th- I thought that that, uh, that that Richard asked because it is true that there's a tendency to simplify, and when in your book, when when it feels like issues have been simplified, you mentioned the Vietnam War, which was like oversimplified under the Johnson White House. There weren't enough dissenting points of view. Um, we can get to a wrong outcome, and so I think it, there's something there, right? That the more 
perspectives, the more angles that you look at things, the, the more, I guess, you know, points there are in the dialectic, the better outcome we get to. Yeah, and look, issues that get to the president, by definition, are not simple. Colin Powell used to have his own matrix where he would talk about the 80-20 or the 90-10 issues. Those get solved in the regional offices in the field by career officers. And the 70-30 issues might get to Washington but solved at a lower level or among career staffers. And it's the 60-40 issues that the political appointees start to get involved in. And it's only the 50.5, 49.5, the ones that are really on the knife's edge, those are the ones that get to the president's desk. And the reason they get to his desk is because they're not the easy calls. That's really interesting, like a funnel. I didn't realize uh, that's a great way to think yeah. about it. All right, well, I'm on with Dr. Tevi Troy. It's really an honor to have you on the program talking about order out of chaos and how conflict and infighting in the White House has affected and perhaps benefited American democracy since World War II. Dr. Troy has written a great book called Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. To Trump that really uh, is like allows you to be a fly in the wall and learn about how policies came into being. And it's not always through some really formal <laughs> academic process. It's often through huge different opinions and conflicts. So we'll be right back on an equal footing. If you want to participate, we do have a caller waiting on line one seven one eight three zero three nine zero nine zero, And uh, give us a minute. Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored tonight by the Voronzov Law Firm, a trusted law firm in the New York area that provides top-notch representation at affordable prices. Attorney Dennis Voronzov provides a custom, tailored approach to your legal needs that gets results. Voronsov Law Firm provides many types of services, including filing for Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 bankruptcy protection, dealing with debtors, immigration services, real estate closings, preparations of wills and trusts, and more. So when you're searching for a trusted personal attorney for your needs, give Voronsov Law Firm a call. If you mention the Equal Footing Show, you will receive a free initial consultation. That's of real value. Vorensov Law Firm has two convenient locations on 30 Wall Street in Manhattan and on East 15th Street and Avenue P in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. To make an appointment, call 212-295-5838. That's 212-295-5838 or visit www.v, like Victor, L-F. Dot law. Again, that's 212-295-5838. Ask for attorney Dennis Varnsov. Mention Equal Footing. You'll get a free consultation. You can also do a virtual video visit in the safety of your own home. I've been We're back on Equal Footing. I'm with Dr. Tevi Troy. He's a best-selling author, presidential historian. We're talking about the concept of Ordo Ab Chao. It's a Latin order out of chaos, how conflict and infighting in the White House has benefited American democracy since World War II. So, Dr. Troy, you're also Jewish. You're an observant Jew. I hope you don't mind being called out on the program as such. I am I am also of, of a member of the tribe. Uh, our audience is... Uh, 
is not, of course, just Jewish. Many of our audience members, I found over time, though, do have faith as a critical component of organizing their their lives. And as I was preparing for the show, I couldn't help but think about the parsha, this the 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 the, the, the section of the Bible that of uh, Humash, the Bible that, that we're on this week. We read a portion each week of the year. And for those of you not Jewish and listening, uh, it's the same. It's what what what, what uh, Christians would call the Old Testament, and if you're of another faith, of course, there's incredible wisdom there. We're in this book of Jethro, Yisroar, which is where the Ten Commandments are given from from Mount Sinai for the first time. They're they're gotten from Mount Sinai for the first time from from Moses from Moshe Rabbeinu, and I, I was thinking about how you couldn't have had the organization, you couldn't have had the um, movement towards an organized unified society that is represented in this portion of the Bible with the, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. If you didn't have the suffering before, if you didn't have the chaos before, what, what unified the Jewish people at that time was the fact that they had been in slavery in Egypt. So many had perished on, on there and on the way out that there was no question that there was unification going to come, didn't take place. So without without asking you to be a rabbi, you have so many degrees, <laughs> Tevi. Um, I will ask you to kind of get out of the, what you usually talk about in, in the media outlets and, and abstract for a moment about whether this is true in politics. Do, do we need to go through these painful catharses, these, whether it's losing Kennedy to assassination in 1963, which arguably is a straight line to the Civil Rights Act, whether it's the uh, uprising, the insurrection that occurred at the White House on January 6th that woke up many people to the extent of polarization. Do we need as a democracy, to go through these incredibly painful moments together to actually unify and do positive things on the other side in, in the way you see presidential history? I would say that out of conflict and trauma often comes change. And I think it's without conflict and without trauma, you don't see the change so much. And so I think that's what I talk about in my book, but I also talk about in my previous book about uh, disasters in the president, shall we wake the president? It's not. It's it's in the calm times. I'm reminded of that uh, that great book uh, or the great movie, The Third Man, the Orson Welles movie, where he has that whole thing about Switzerland, and he says 400 years in peace and prosperity, and all they invented was the cuckoo clock. And he talks about how the rest of Europe was riven by rivalry and hatreds and wars, and and there are all these great inventions and great advances. So I, I think that's part of it. I think that the, uh, the the conflict that I talk about, without it, you wouldn't have the changes. And not all change is good, but without without the conflict, you don't have the changes to begin with. Yeah, I think there's, there's been a um, long-standing, somewhat controversial point of view. It goes, probably goes back to de Tocqueville uh, around the observation of American democracy and like that, that the messiness gets us places. That, you know, even though we have in, in arguably less endowed uh, in terms of natural resources than South America, for example, um, you know, have been able to advance much more quickly and further down the track in all the objective metrics as a result of the dialectic of what is a naturally messy system that brings us pain and suffering on occasion. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's plenty of, uh, of fighting and conflict in South America. I think what we have is this set of institutions that we hold dear right. that have allowed us to manage conflict in a productive way. The fact that we have a constitution and a Supreme Court and we have 
we have ways of getting answers to the questions that, that sometimes are very difficult without necessarily falling apart. Now, obviously, once it happened with the Civil War, but that has not been our our go-to approach. <laughs> the, the old joke about the French Constitution would be found in the uh, in the periodical section of the library. Not the case of the American Constitution. Mm-hmm. It is one document. It's been with us for 200 years. It's served us well, and I hope that it will continue to serve us well in the future. You make a good point that it's structural, that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's related to the institution. So let's take a call on line one. Line one, you're on the air on equal footing with myself, Dove Tuzman, and Dr. Tevi Troy. Hi, good evening. This is Stan from Forest Hills. Hi, Stan. Good evening. Always a pleasure. Uh, doctor, uh, Two areas of question, and then you may can tell me if you can answer it. One, I have not read your book. I honestly, I haven't heard of you before. I've heard of John uh, Arthur Schlesinger and uh, other people. But uh, uh, one, how in your book do you handle how administrations in infighting dealing with the press and getting out the truth? We always see the only picture we really see is the press secretary up front. In your view, based on what you've written, which of the uh, administrations handled the press relatively good and relatively bad. I would think Trump handled relatively the worst. But what have you, and that's the first part of it. The second one Let, is... Let's do the first part first. Go ahead, go ahead. The question. So it, it's a great question, and different administrations have handled the press in different ways. I have, uh, I actually do look at this question because leaking is such an important part of conflict, and we, we've mentioned this a couple of times in the interview, but leaking is really one of the ways that people lash out at one another in, in the White House. So um, I, I think that uh, different administrations have obviously handled it differently. I think the Trump administration, uh, people, people, the press didn't really want to talk about this that, that much, but Trump was very accessible to the press in a way that Obama wasn't, in a way that Biden certainly isn't. Uh, it's much more controlled what they give to the press. Now, obviously, uh, I think Trump was undisciplined in the way he communicated to the press. But I think the press will miss the direct access they had to him, even as they obviously disliked him very much. Uh, I think the Reagan administration did a really good job in handling the press. They had an approach. It was called the one message of the day or the, or the one idea of the day, and they would be relentlessly pushing that one idea of the day. And it didn't happen every day. But more often than not, the press would report, would report on what the message of the day was. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Stan, what's the second part? The second part of the question is, uh, Zev mentioned, I'm not, I'm sorry, Zev, Dov mentioned that you're Jewish, and Dov is Jewish, and I'm Jewish. Now, this is a question about, there's a great book that came out about 15 years ago, The Secret War Against the Jews, by John Loftus and Mark Ahrens. Uh, in that book, the Bush administration gets negative 20 as one of the worst administrations, which you happen to have been in. In your opinion, over the years, which administration do you think has handled the Jewish situation better, Israel and so forth? Great question. Stan, as always, thanks for your no great problem. questions. Go ahead. So is the question, if it's about which administrations are good on Israel versus not good on Israel? It, it sounded like it was broader about the Jewish community in, in general, but either, either way you feel comfortable answering. Yeah, I think it is interesting how there used to be an expectation that the Jewish community was just the, let's say, reforming conservative Jewish community and the, and the mainstream Jewish organizations. And I think you've had this flowering of orthodoxy and orthodox political power in recent years. And I think George W. Bush is one of the first to recognize that and really make an effort to appeal to that community. Uh, in terms of uh, 
relationships on Israel. I think that the Republican administrations in the early days of Israel, especially the Eisenhower administration, were terrible on Israel, very critical, but the Republicans have gotten progressively better on Israel over time, whereas I think that the Democrats were seen as the pro-Israel party for a long time, well into the 90s, uh, but they've gotten a little weaker, I would say, on Israel in recent years, and I hope the Biden administration is a corrective to that. Biden has long-standing ties to Israel and didn't have the kind of negative uh, feeling of, of towards Israel that Obama seemed to have. So hopefully uh, Biden has a more positive view towards Israel. I think he does, and I hope that is carried out in his policies as well. So in the few minutes we have left here, Tevi, this has been really fun. Let's do one more text question, then, I've, I, then I want to step back and ask you to play the devil's advocate. So uh, the question here, let me get this up, is if you had to choose one White House conflict that had the biggest impact on actual policy, what would it be and why? Well, that is a really good question. I think there, there, there are a lot of them, uh, but I, I think that uh, what I found is, is con- consistently uh, these things have to do with Israel. And one of the great set pieces in my book is about the recognition of Israel itself, because in, back in 1948, uh, it was an open question of whether Israel would be recognized by the United States of America. And Truman set things up so that there was an actual conflict in front of him to decide whether to recognize Israel or not. And George Marshall, the Secretary of State, was adamantly opposed to recognizing Israel, and he had the support of most of the, na- most of the national security establishment. Uh, but Clark Clifford was a junior White House aide at the time, and he argued in favor of recognizing Israel. He wins the debate, but at the cost of relationship with Marshall, who never again spoke to him or uttered his name for the rest of his life. So there was an intense conflict, very sharp, but at the end, the right decision was come to, which is America recognized Israel, and we have remained allies to this day. Mindy from Manhattan, thank you for that question. That was not at all what I expected. That was great. And can you imagine a world in which that had gone the other way for a long period of time? It would have fundamentally affected our... Everything. Everything. Yeah, everything. <laughs> yeah. So in a couple minutes we have left, one of the things we like to do at the end of these shows is try to kind of flip the script a little bit and ask us to get out of our comfort zone. And I ask listeners to do this too. Like when they have a perspective on a topic we're covering, try to really grok the other side, get yourself in the other side shoes. And I think that's how we really learn. So Dr. Troy, Te- Tevi, you, you've done so much research on the... The, the rivalries in the in the White House and and I would say kind of do the degree of managerial dysfunction and, 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 and chaos, even if often out of that came good results. Is there a counter argument? And how would you make the counter argument and I we only have about a minute by the way, um, that in fact the White House th- that White Houses have been incredibly well managed, that all things considered they're very smoothly running machines. Is there an argument to be made along those lines? I wouldn't say that they are smoothly running machines, but they, there are very strict White House processes. And when you get to the White House, you very quickly learn that there's a way in which you staff documents, a way you get documents approved, a way in which you bring things to the president. And in, in that way, they're actually quite regimented. Even though there is conflict, there is a way that doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican administration, that there's a way that things are done, and I think that carries over from administration to administration. That's that kind of enduring institution. Even if it's not written, you get that you know for two hundred plus years, and that's one of the benefits we we get as 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 the most 
uh, long, non-tenured democracy on the planet. Dr. Tevi Troy, it's been great to have you. I encourage everyone to buy all of his books, but particularly we're talking about Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Thanks for joining Equal Footing tonight. Thanks so much. Have a good night. See you next week. America Land that I love Stand beside her And guide her Through the night With a light